Governance is your protection from being marshmallowed all over. What I mean by that is well-intentioned people who love what you're doing come with all their bad practices, preconceived ideas, all their brilliant ideas, and like take yours and just squash it with sweetness and good intentions. Hello and welcome to the Making the Difference podcast with me, your host, Kirsty Gilchrist, where I get to speak to different leaders from around the world who are currently making a difference. This podcast is my playground where I get to deep dive into the world of strategy, where people share how they're reaching their vision, the highs and the lows, so that you can listen, reflect and act. So come and join me and see how you too can make a difference. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Lee Anderson, who is both a fantastic social entrepreneur. She's had a brilliant career in the corporate world, including IBM and Oracle, to step tech startups in London to the third sector, advising on mergers, social franchising and governance, social investment and supporting startup incubators. She is now one of the UK's prominent experts on governance for social enterprise and is also a Gallup Strength Certified Coach. She is a fantastic enabler and guide for anyone looking to start out, expand and generally make a difference. So Karen, hello. Lovely to see you. Hi Kirsty. lovely to be with you. Karen, um, this podcast is obviously called Making the Difference and you certainly have been and are, but tell me about you and where your journey started. When I joined IBM as a graduate hire, I was hired into sales which was a great place to start. And it was before the internet. I actually remember being with a very dear friend of mine walking across the road at lunchtime. And she said, I've heard about this new thing. I think we should find out about it. It's called the internet. <laughs> um, uh, but doing sales and tech then gave me this framework to understand technology. But I was a second generation IBMer. My dad was an IBMer. And so I knew the corporate world and I had this thing that I didn't want to earn money to make shareholders money, income, profit. I, I was adamant about this and I'm not sure where I got it from because in 1991 in South Africa, sort of social enterprise was not on my mind. Um, and and I, I loved corporate culture, so I was really interested in the IBM culture, which is quite distinctive. It meant I found Oracle quite difficult because it was very different from IBM. I, I sort of value the way IBM do business. Um, and I said to myself, I'd be three years at IBM and then I would move on. That, uh, where I thought I'd go, I don't know. And I did some um, consulting. I actually got a few gigs and I did consulting, which I found lonely. So I went back into the corporate world. And then when I came to the UK, um, I got involved in the tech startup world. I still had this thing that I really just wanted to do consulting and I wanted to change the world for good. And I still didn't know what social enterprise was. And by this time it was 10 years on and I was actually at a church council meeting and one of the other council members said, you know, we need some help. The kind of stuff you do with tech startups, we want you to do for a social enterprise. And it was a cooperative. I was like, I don't even know what a cooperative is or a social enterprise. And that was my introduction. And it was a, a great social enterprise in Cambridge called Daily Bed that's um, all around running a whole food shop. And they'd been around for 15 years, which again was also something that at that time was really new. We were just on the start of Whole Foods. And suddenly I discovered that you could run a business and make people's lives better at the same time. And their mission was creating employment, which is my consistent purpose is I I love helping 
people create businesses that employ people other people probably don't think of employing. And what I have found over the years is although there's a kind of a separate part of the social enterprise world that do just that, um, almost every social entrepreneur I've supported, whether they want to do um, tech for good or whether they want to do environmental support or community change, they always employ people no one else wants to employ. It just seems that inclusive employment is part of people changing the world for good. It's like a no-brainer to them. So over the years, I've moved from the very sort of narrow focus on just organizations that are purely about employment into this broader space where I love working with people who want to build a business and change the world in a good way. And and make a difference, which is where I think that we, we align quite a bit. One of your expertises is is governance. That that is something that I, I, I think a lot of people tend to think about last when they, they're setting up to make an organization or, or set something up and they want to make a difference. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I need to have a board. Quick, will you be on it? Do you want to sort of dispel some of those myths of what you think is, is really important in terms of, of developing governance? So I think it should be the starting point. And so governance for me starts about your choice of legal structure. Um, and I've irritated some founders by not helping them incorporate some of them ever, they walk away because they cross with me and others for almost a year, because unless you can be really clear what you're trying to do. And, and I haven't met any social entrepreneur who doesn't want to leave a legacy of change. And so they are really clear they want to do that. And then they choose a legal structure that gives them no protection and they don't articulate that change. And everyone feels that personal charisma, because that's the kind of zeitgeist of our era, is personal charisma and entrepreneurial craziness and busyness and noise and speed is how you build a business. And when you look at the ones that last, so I got to do... I, a Churchill Fellowship working with an organization that had been around for 120 years, creating 5 million jobs. And they still stuck to the mission that the founder created in the early 1900s because he was really clear and he wrote it down. So it's not about personal energy anymore. Once you put words on a page, you help people go, Oh, you mean that? Or you can even say, well, you use the word kind or you use the word good. What do you mean? So suddenly there's a an, an informed discussion. And if you then create a legacy of clarity in how you incorporate, you then have the structure for hiring your board because everyone forgets that boards have to do what your company constitution says and what the country's law says as well. So they have two kind of bosses, um, the founders, and, and the only way they know what the founders want is what's written in the constitutional articles and the government. And that's really clear because you have company law. Um, and almost every organization I work with, people create a regular company and they miss the point that when you hire a board, regular companies are set up for profit for shareholders, not for creating a legacy. So if you don't insert into the legal constitution that you want to create a profit profit because we do need a profit to run a business, but you also want to do this other thing and you create it in a really clear way, the board can do anything they like because that's what you're hiring them for. And so people often think governance is 
frustrating. But what I love about it is it's it's about taking away the boring stuff that can go wrong so that once you've figured it out, once you've put it in your articles, you've said, this is what I want to achieve and I don't want to do all these things. I want to do this. And you find a way of explaining it. And then you create a board pack that says to a board, this is when I want my board meetings to be. This is the kind of people I want. And this is how long I want you to be involved. Then you never have to do that again. (laughs) You've saved all your time. (laughs) That approach is really strategic. Yes. So it means that what you're doing is sitting down at the very beginning and going, well, how much control do I want to have? How much, you know, what are, what are the different sort of no-nos that I can be in control of versus actually I, you know, so versus a cooperative, I suppose, if you're thinking about those different legal structures versus a um, community interest company. Um, you can think about, okay, well, who do I want around me and and where do I want this to go? And so what do I want my legacy to be? Because it, essentially, if you're doing it for the right reasons, you're not even going to be there in the future, going back to your 120 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so on the one hand, you're going, you know, what, what control do I want? But at the same time, you're going, while I'm here... <laughs> I want to create this and here's what the legal structure, but I'm looking at 120 years time. And and that means that you genuinely have to know what your vision is as well, because you really have to think about, okay, if I were to achieve this, what does success look like and what legal structure is going to take me to that? And I think when we think of 120 years of legacy, when we're thinking about incorporating, because I see most people want to incorporate because they want to grow, but they also know that they're human and they have a a finite lifespan. (laughs) And so part of the growth and sustainability is having something that's not you, that can outlast you (laughs) in many ways. (laughs) Um, That is not the mission of business in the world today. Exactly. And going back to the conversation we've had before as well, is that if you're looking for investment, one of the first conversations is, well, what's your exit strategy? Yep. And it's like, well, why do we talk about an exit strategy when we're trying to create a, le- <laughs> a legacy? There's like, can't compute. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's quite an interesting, that, I mean, that's a, a key difference yeah. and one that not many people pick up on, I think, in this world. Yeah. And and I think let's be clear what they mean by exit is selling the business to someone else. Everyone takes that at face value. But but first of all, there's an assumption that you as a founder have created value, so you'll get value out of it that you can then go and spend on something good, is is the mission lots of social entrepreneurs tell me. When you look at the stats, the founders in those types of exits very seldom get money. I mean, they get like a minuscule amount back. And even when they consider selling their business in what's called a trade sale, which is where someone who does what you do just wants to grow. So they buy you to expand. And I've done mergers and acquisition work in the social space to do that. Um, I've seen so many founders disappoint. But it's worth this. I, I mean, the first deal I did in the acquisition program I did in Scotland, this founder said, so my price is a million. And I've had it valued by three different accountants and they all tell me that's irrational, but I still want a million for it. And so because it was a um, third sector organization doing the deal, their accountant said, but it's not worth a million. And he went, but you know, I missed my children's um, 
school plays and I wasn't there for the for the um hockey trips and I didn't do this and I didn't do this and I put all these hours in and I wasn't paid. It's like you don't that doesn't create value in your business. Value in your business is profit. Um, and so you as a founder can't assume that exit means you're going to make money that you can then spend on good. But also, so many sales are done to buy your customer list, grab a piece of IP, and sometimes even put it in a cupboard and close the door. So you've created something, a little piece of tech or an idea that you think is going to change the world for good. Someone might pay your investors a satisfactory exit for them to put it in a cupboard and stop you making that change. Nobody tells you that. <laughs> because it's counter to the entire ethos of growing businesses as seen as a, you grow it to sell it. Well, no, that's only like the last 50 years that people have been talking about that. Maybe even the last 20 years. You know, let's be honest. Before that, regular human beings built businesses for their families to outlast themselves. They didn't build it. to. They built it because they wanted a good salary. They built it because they wanted to do something. And before social enterprise, you know, it wasn't that people weren't doing good. They were maybe just automatically creating employment for people in their area or some kind of change. I'm not saying all top industrialists over the last 200 years meant social change, but um, they certainly didn't build something to sell tomorrow. Yeah, which is a really interesting thing to think about because in the world of social enterprise, I mean, it, it is like Narnia, as I've, I've said many times before. So I think if you're not in this world, you go, well, you've either got a company or you've got a charity. Whereas here we've got so many different levels of legal structure where you yeah. can don't be a company limited by guarantee or you've got a company limited by shares, so you can have shareholders and investors. But there's a slightly different ring to it than if you were a private company. Do you want to talk to that a little bit in terms of that, the, the sort of being able to have shareholders and still be a social enterprise? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I say there's 18 different standard models of legal structures. That's without you tweaking them in any way. And so when people come to me and say, I'm very confused and my lawyer says this and everyone says this, and I'm like, can we just stop listening to everybody else? Because very few people know all 18. And in the share structure, I think there's probably about five or six different share-based structures. Um, and again, you kind of need to understand the, the boring legal stuff, which is what are the trigger points for shareholders' power? So the first one is at 75%, if you put into your articles of your share company, basically any share company that you want to um, create a change and you say profit and this change, you have to keep 25% of the shares, 25.1 or 0.00001 because you can then effectively block anyone making that change. Because in order for someone to make that change over you, they need 75%. Everyone thinks it's a majority, so they aim at 50. But then you need to read shareholders' agreements. And I and the best entrepreneurs I know are the people who go, well, this shareholder's driving me nuts. But I figured out that at the next round, their pivot point to have extra input is 10%. So if you have 10% of my shares, you can have a vote 
to decide who's on the board. Because rather than having every shareholder being able to vote on the board, as you start to add investors. And so the really great investors, um, entrepreneurs I know, figure out that if they do another round and they put that difficult person under 10%, even if it's 9.97%, suddenly they can't vote on certain things. And so these kind of technical details give you power. And it's not power in an egotistical way. It's power in a, you are giving up a lot of things to create a business. So let's make sure it's the business you want. Let's not have everybody else's opinion on the business. Let's make it really sure that you're doing what you want to do and you're getting that chance. And so let's use all the things we can to protect it. Yeah. And and also, what is it that makes that a social enterprise versus just a private company? Well... There is no legal definition of a social enterprise, which is also why I talk about working with social entrepreneurs, because a social enterprise, it depends if you're talking to SEUK, if you're talking to the social enterprise mark people, if you're talking to the guys in America, you know, there's just so many different ways of defining a social enterprise. But in essence, it's saying you want to run a business and you want to create a change. And you want to define that change and put it in your articles. Now, people at this stage often get, they go, oh, but then you're a B Corp. Okay, so a B Corp, you do put change in your articles, but the B Corp changes basically for people, planet and profit. And it's that light touches you want to do good, but it leaves a lot of space for waffling. What do you want to say no to? How, how do you get around and how do you think about people ahead who are going to go, well, we just want to make money? Because when you set up a company limited by shares, that's what everyone thinks you're trying to do. And yes, we need money because the business is not a business without money. And it's, you know, the biggest thing people don't understand is profit and costs and value and all of that. But actually, you need to have that, that mindset that goes, what if they call it something else? How do I protect that? Yeah. Again, which is being strategic. Completely. So actually you're creating what you don't want to happen. You're going, this is my vision and therefore what can I put into place in order to make sure other things don't happen or other people don't come in and try and change what I'm, I'm trying to do. Yeah. When people think of governance, they think of board, but they don't think of actually that initial bit and the excitement about creating something and really thinking it through. They just think about I've got to have people around me. Um, yeah, I love it. Someone says, I've got these individuals. And I go, okay, when you're saying, what do you mean? Do you mean you want them to be co-founders? Do you want to give them shares? Because when you just go randomly, and this happens to social entrepreneurs, people rush up to them and say, oh, I love what you're doing. I want to help. And unless you have these little, I call them frameworks for engagement that go, okay, so I need someone to do two hours volunteering a week to do my, my Twitter account. Um, or do you want to be employed by me? Or do you want to put money in and be a founder and a shareholder? Or, or do you want to be on my board? You know, you need to know in advance what those frameworks are that you're looking for people. Because otherwise you get marshmallowed all over. Governance is your protection from being marshmallowed all over. What I mean by that is well-intentioned people who love what you're doing come with all their bad practices, preconceived ideas, all their brilliant ideas, and like take yours and just squash it with sweetness and good intentions. And, and it's not fun. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you often just want to get on with doing the job. So let's deal with the 
boring planning stuff as far in advance as possible so that you can then do the job. And therefore, what do you say the role of the board is? So the role of the board, from a governance point of view, it's to keep you on the straight and narrow legally because directors on your board. So let's be clear, we're talking about legal directors. So in the UK, they're they're people at companies' house who are directors of the company. That's all we're talking about with boards, not boards of advisors and all this other crap, um, because that just confuses you and gives you lots of meetings where you have to do what people say and they have no power over your company. Directors on a board are people who are legally responsible for your business. So they have to believe in what you're doing and they have to be committed. They are more committed than shareholders. If something goes wrong, directors of companies are more liable than shareholders. So they really are by your side. But their purpose is to bring you out of the day-to-day, remind you of your vision. And part of that is that you communicate your vision to them. But part of that is from a strategic point of view, you put it in your articles. So you want people on your board who read your articles and go, so in your articles it says, There's no casting vote for a chair. That's interesting. You know, oh, and you had this statement that you wanted to give free banking with no fee to this. How's that actually working? What's happening in operations? So a good board makes sure that things like risk policies, risk controls in there, they have to sign on your bank account, some of them, um, you know, so there's not just you responsible. um, But they are there to say to you, let's look up. Let's look out of the day today because you so easily get sucked into it. So they are there to give you that strategic vision and to remind you. So it's kind of partly looking back and saying, what did you say you wanted to do? Is it working? And how do we adjust to go forward? What would you say then is the difference between a social enterprise board and a charitable board? Well, it depends on who you get on your board because you get a whole lot of the well-meaning want to give something back people who do genuinely want to give something back but who have all these bad practices that come from the charitable sector onto social enterprise boards um, and i think this is where it's quite interesting to point out that social enterprise is at an intersection so we had an intersection between startup the crazy startup fast business world of investment and you know just dot commy stuff that's kind of merged over and shark in Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and all that kind of stuff. So that's the one place where you'll get people who want to be on your board because you're funky and interesting as a social entrepreneur. You get people from the charitable sector who see you, who see the good stuff and say, well, I've been on charity boards, so I want to help you. And you also get um, the corporates who want to grow a portfolio career of being on boards and they've come from being a bank manager or a consultant manager or something. And all we're at the intersection of social enterprise. And I think what people don't understand is that you as the social entrepreneur can decide what you include from those worlds. And, and so all of those worlds have bad practice. And sometimes it's not intentional. Sometimes it's just they've been on a board again and again and again that does something and they assume that's how all boards are. And they're not. You can read your articles or your manual to your board. So you can say the chair doesn't get an extra vote. We go back to the drawing board. If the board is split on a board decision, boards don't vote on a lot of things. But if the board is voting on something and your board is split down the middle, do you really want someone who happens to chair that meeting to get an extra vote to just say, done, sorted, move on? Bearing in mind that 
boards are supposed to be strategic and the chances of you having to vote on something at a board level is so rare that if your board isn't unanimous, which by the way is what the rest of your articles will always say, (laughs) is boards are supposed to function unanimously, work together. Do you really want at that point where there's a schism to just go, oh, someone can have an extra vote? No. But you bring someone on and they'll go, oh, all boards have been on, the chair gets an extra vote. Or all boards have been on, um, directors get shares. Or all boards have been on, do this. Or from a management space, they've never actually been on a board, but they've also never worked in a startup. So they go, well, surely your secretary can do that. Or HR can do that. Or finance can do that. It's like, that's me. Uh, that's me. Uh, that's me. <laughs> It actually goes back to control, doesn't it? Because in, in a charity, yeah. essentially, the board employs the CEO or the, the manager yeah. or whoever. Whereas in a social enterprise, you you are in control and you're bringing the board in to help support strategically and and have your back. Oh yeah, and I also think so. I have worked with social entrepreneurs who have chosen charity legal structures. Either because they've had bad advice before I get to them, which really frustrates me, <laughs> or because it genuinely is the right structure to create their legacy. And and what what then you can actually put a lot of things in place. It is a bit like giving your baby away, but you can actually put a lot of things in place to make sure that the board of the charity recognise. That, that they're looking after your baby. So even when I'm looking at um, trustee duties, you can have a slight tweak in language. So all the trustee duties say, your charity to the board. And yes, technically it is theirs. But if you talk about the charity as something separate, so you have the charity rather than your charity, it just starts to help them recognize that as an entrepreneurial founder, you're different and, and you're not just an employee. I mean, I've had some entrepreneurial founders almost be fired from their charity board. It was like, you don't understand there would be no charity if this person wasn't there. I suppose that's always been my big difference between charity and, and social enterprise in terms of the, that power thing. of Well, and, to, and, and actually the same with a cooperative, a Bencom. It's like that, that founder, entrepreneurial founder could be maneuvered out in the future if if they so wish that can happen with share companies too and then that's the part also that people that happens most with investment i mean i i had someone who thought a lot about governance um really deeply they were really clear on their structure and on their purpose but they hadn't thought about boards and so they took on investors and the investors were then continuing the business the way they had said this is what it must do and mustn't do from a social point of view, but because they didn't think about managing the board in any way, the entire board was investors and they outed them. It just And they came to me when the investors, who were all the directors except them, were having meetings behind their back. And I said, well, yeah, technically they shouldn't be doing that because if they're having a board meeting rather than an investor meeting, you should be included. But you don't have any independent directors on that board. And so you've got no one who's holding everyone to account to the purpose. And that's where I think thinking boards through really carefully. And I kind of have this thing where I do get very stressed founders coming to me and I go, you've got the board you man it. You chose. You by 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 abdicating, by letting your investors decide what the board structure, you chose that. 
true governance brings an independent eye, you know. And and again, having that strategy and knowing where you're going to go and who you need around you in order to make something happen is absolutely crucial, which is brilliant. That's been fantastic to deep dive into strategy, but um, I've realised that we've we've moved away from uh, from you <laughs> and and social, <laughs> not social entrepreneur place, which is your what, what you have founded. What um, I'm assuming you sort of came to that because you've just seen how much support is needed and a gap in the market. What so how how did that come about? There is a gap, I think, for supporting people at the pace that works for them. Because I think, and this is not without reference to research. You know, being part of the university for six years, I, I got to see research on this. And I worked with someone, Belinda Bell, who's incredibly strategic, um, who built the incubator at Cambridge, the social venture incubator, with this in mind. But we still had the constraints of timing to say that Social entrepreneurs often are more successful if they build the business alongside something else. So this concept of having a hobby, turning it into sort of a moonlighting and slowly growing it and then shifting from working a job to running your business. That slow startup, counterintuitively to what everyone expects, are more likely to be successful. Building a business takes time and you do need to take the time. And so if you can uncouple support and make it accessible when people need it, rather than saying, because so many times I was, you know, I've got nine months to make a difference or I've got 12 months to make a difference or sometimes six months or sometimes even three months. You know, some of these programs are so condensed. People come at different stages. People need different things. Sometimes they don't need to incorporate and they can just test the idea. Sometimes they need to incorporate because they need a contract rather than even investment or funding. Um, Sometimes they need a board because they've got a huge fund that's going to help them, but they can't access that fund until they've got three independent directors. So they need different help at different times. Sometimes it is just helping people figure out what their marketing is, you know, and you and I both know how important strategic marketing is. So I think it's, for me, it was that uncoupling. I, I don't think I've quite figured it out yet because I do think there needs to be more free stuff out there. So I am playing with how to give free stuff. I just heard the same thing that I hear all the time, which is someone going, well, my pal who's a startup used this once, I just copied theirs, or the lawyer said this, or I went to some group of random peer support people who said this. And I'm going, can we just like dump what everyone else said, including I've had business lecturers from from renowned business schools say blah, blah, blah. And lawyers have arguments about what an, a kick asset lock looks like and get it wrong <laughs> because it's kicks are right in the middle of structures between charities and and corporate structures. And so either side gets it wrong. Um, And just say, can you just tell me what you're doing? Can we just figure out what you're doing? And some of them I said, you should just be a charitable incorporated organization. There's nothing about, no, but I've been told that they're very difficult to set up and hard to manage. I'm going, okay, you have to report to the kick regulator and to company's house. A charitable incorporated organization report to one entity. This happened to be a local festival that gets run once a year and it's got a voluntary committee. I'm going, 
Why not just make it a charity? You know, and and equally, I had some people who wanted to be a kick, and I'm going. I really don't think you should. I think you need to be like a regular company because, for example, if you are an author and you're writing content, and some of sometimes it's been paid for by your company and sometimes not, if that company's a kick and has paid for it, they own part of what you've written, even though you've got copyright on the material. It's like. So the minute I get people in the creative space, I say, let's be really clear. Maybe you write it first, we incorporate the kick afterwards, and then you assign a license to the kick to use the content. But be really, know what you want to do. Let's be real. Let's not make it up. (laughs) So you spotted the gap. What have you had to overcome on a a personal sort of leadership journey? So I think um, it's now been two and a half years since I sort of, did the step change in the brand of Social Entrepreneur Place and consciously stepped out of any long-term contracts. So it, it meant stepping away from the business school, but there were a couple of other contracts. And I didn't realize the freedom my brain would get from that because when I'm delivering on behalf of another organization, not as an independent trainer, facilitator, coach, but when I'm under contract or even employed by them, there are things I can and cannot say, you know, and suddenly, now what do I actually think about this? What is, what is it that I really want to do? Yeah. And what's my voice? Yeah. And find it. And it's, where am I second guessing myself? You know, I love Savannah Muzan. She often says, what are you assuming that's holding you back? And I was like, oh my goodness. It's like my brain can't cope with all that kind of stuff. So I've even done some of her, some coaching with her just to kind of break the frame that I've created. Which I I completely relate to as well. I think I've definitely been in in that situation as well. So what what top three things would you say to anyone starting up? (laughs) Which I have a feeling I might know at least one of them based on our (laughs) conversation. Or somebody who really just wants to make a difference. So I think if you want to make a difference or if you want to start something, be really clear on what you want to do. (laughs) So clear on your legacy and, and try and use the same language all the time, the same words to say, this is the vision, this is my impact, this is the change I want to make. And put, if you are going so far as to incorporate something, put that in your articles. So be really, really clear. And until those words are clear and are yours, and, and just on the issue we've just covered, what matters to you? Put them in. And I suppose it's bit, yeah, being really, really clear that that's what matters to you, not yeah. what you think you should be putting in in the situation that you're in. <laughs> and that you might have used before. So, you know, when I was looking at, I changed my articles for Social Entrepreneur Place, I looked at um, economic justice and empowerment are the things that really drive me. You know, it's serious systemic change around those issues. And, and giving myself permission to put that in was, you know, Good. And I think the second thing is um, working with advisors, professionals, and just about anyone else who has an opinion. (laughs) If you don't understand them or they don't understand you, don't give up. Keep asking questions. Keep explaining yourself. It might be that you just haven't explained it properly. And so you go back to point number one. But at point number two, if an advisor or anyone on your board does not communicate in a way that you understand, find someone else. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and you have the power to do that. You do. Yeah. 
And so obviously, you're on boards. My golden rule is never, ever ask someone to be on your board. Ask them to apply to be on your board and have a list that says, this is what I want, um, which at least gives you the power and gives you permission to say you're coming on for the term to do this. So you can say it's not working by. Um, but the same with lawyers, you have the power. And the, I think the final thing is it's really boring and it is kind of governance again. <laughs> it's do the daily boring stuff. So again, we're sold on this charismatic leader. You know what? The people who build businesses that change the world are not charismatic leaders. They are people who do the stuff every day that needs to be done. So even social media consistently using platforms the way they should be used, not the way everyone else says or you think they should work, is what gives you a brand that lasts. The same with consistently tracking what you spend, consistently tracking your time allows you to go, actually, I didn't take into account that when I'm selling to this customer, it takes me six meetings for them to finally agree and pay me. They pay 30 days late. That cost of customer acquisition is huge. You need to know that. Whereas selling it online when someone pays and books and you don't ever have to talk to them again and beg them because they've paid up front and, and you've said, this is what I'm offering. You, you, you want to do both if you're in our space, but actually it's the daily boring stuff that really, really matters. It's what builds businesses that last, not the, even at networking, you know, Going in with a plan and saying, who's there? Who do I want to talk to? What do I want to say to them? Strategically thinking about everything, having a plan. That's what leadership is about. It's going, tomorrow, what do I want to get out of tomorrow? Because if you don't have a plan, someone else will marshmallow all over your plan because it's not there. Yeah, such a brilliant point. So the last question is, how can listeners help you to make a difference? Um. Don't incorporate without speaking to me even for free. <laughs> Don't. And uh, uh, most of all, please never ask anyone to be on your Yeah, board. <laughs> I think that's just a really, really valid point. Listen, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really, really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to it and getting into the, the nuts and bolts of uh, <laughs> legal structures, like nerds that we are, uh, and and boards as well. I think it's so important, as well as just to get your, um, you know, your expertise, because you clearly know your stuff um, and have a brilliant voice as well. So if you haven't found it already, you're pretty nearly there, is all I can say. So, uh, Karen, thank you so much. That's been brilliant. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you have any thoughts, comments or questions, please find me on Instagram, links in the show notes. And please also subscribe and review. Thank you for listening to Making the Difference.